from uh, about 15 years on up, uh, a great deal of my thoughts were uh, basically unshareable. We are all evil in some form or another. Yes, I am not 100%, but I am evil. My mother was a, a sick, angry, hungry, and very sad woman. I hated her, but I wanted to love my mother. This is Serial Killing, a podcast. Hello again, and welcome to Serial Killing, a podcast, where we sometimes veer off the serial killer path to delve into other topics within our beloved true crime community. Special thanks to my patrons who voted for this episode. Thank you so much. You are truly appreciated. And for anyone else, please feel free to join my patron so that you can vote on who will be next or get early access to the podcasts. Like, share, and subscribe. It might just help our little community grow. Any little bit would help me reach my goal of being able to bring you more content with more visuals, videos, and interviews, and so on. So just kind of keep that in mind. So today's podcast was voted for by patrons and will be on the socialite Barbara Ann Bakeland. So Barbara Ann Bakeland was born on September 28, 1921 in Cambridge, Massachusetts. So as we do, let's get into some history for that time. And might I say that it's kind of nice to not have a birth year in the 1940s. Am I right? So in 1921, the Emergency Quota Act was passed, and this limited the number of immigrants that were allowed to come into the United States. It was a response to the anti-immigrant sediments that were going on at the time and the high unemployment that also followed World War I. Also this year, after the Irish War of Independence, where violence during the war increased after Bloody Sunday, when IRA operatives assassinated 12 British Army officers, one Royal Irish Constable, and a civilian informant, the Irish Free State was created, and they issued their Declaration of Independence from the United Kingdom two years prior. Also in 1921, Soviet Russia and Poland signed a treaty establishing a permanent border between the two countries. The borders were set in this treaty and were in effect until the outbreak of World War II, after which different borders were established. The treaty also ended the Russo-Polish War that had been taking place between 1919 and 1920, during which the two sides fought over control of Ukraine. So the Great Famine of 1921 in Russia was different from many famines that the world had witnessed in that the number of contributing circumstances surrounding this event were unusual. The economic devastation caused by World War I, the Russian Revolution, the Russian Civil War, certain Soviet policies, and, you know, droughts in the Volga region were all culminating factors that added to the scale and severity of the Great Famine. Also in 1921, Adolf Hitler became the chairman of the Nazi Party in his rise to power and prominence in Germany. Franklin D. Roosevelt, at 39 years old, contracted polio. 
the Ku Klux Klan activities became quite violent throughout the southern United States in 1921. And then we have some of our other notable people that were born the same year Barbara was. We have actor Charles Bronson, most of you probably don't remember him, and the former First Lady, Nancy Reagan. So this was the atmosphere that Barbara was born into. Now, Barbara was born Barbara Daly in Cambridge, Massachusetts, which is basically a suburb of Boston. Not that I've been there, but that's how it was described. Her father was Frank James Daly. He was born in 1988 in Massachusetts. His extended family stated that he was from a, quote, frail line. His father was violent and eccentric, nonconformist, as his father before him. His mother did not maintain the home. She, quote, mooned at the piano all day. So basically, she was very morose, just very, maybe a, a touch of the theatrics. So Barbara's mother was Nina Lillian Frazier. Some people called her Nini. Some people called her Lillian. I will call her Nina for the purposes of this podcast. She was born in 1893 in Massachusetts. Now, Nina's father, Edward, 1867, he was born in Nova Scotia, Canada. Nina's mother was also from Nova Scotia. The couple moved down into the U.S. before Nina was born again in Massachusetts, along with a few other children. I believe there was five total. So Edward worked for the railroad, but was also apparently doing accountant work on the side. But they made enough to live a kind of middle class, upper middle class life, and they even made enough to hire a maid. So Nina stated that she was married at 18 years old and that she was a mother by the time she was 19 years old. Now, a lot of other um, podcasters, content creators, video makers, and so on could not find out whether or not Barbara was an only child, but I found that she actually had an older brother. Frank and Nina together had their son, Frank Richard Daly, born in 1913. And now Nina said that she had a difficult birth. I mean, Frank Jr. weighed 10 pounds. She was pretty sickly after for a while. The words that she used to describe how she felt gave me the sense that not only did it take her a bit to get her strength back, but that she possibly could have had some severe postpartum depression. Now, Barbara was born eight years later. She was also a big baby that apparently weighed 10 pounds, but that she was a beautiful baby. She had French lessons when she was little. She was described as an extremely bright child. One of her cousins said, quote, Barbara and I had a great many wonderful experiences in our growing up years. She was almost, in many ways, a sister to me. She was a lovely child. She really was one of the most beautiful girls you could ever see. Her coloring was absolutely gorgeous and, of course, that beautiful red hair. She was a very popular child and always had a lot of personality. End quote. Now, it was described that they lived in a large house up on a hill with a large porch with columns. But if they were middle class to slightly upper middle class, then perhaps as a child she saw the house bigger than what it was. Kind of foggy on that. But Barbara had her own room with lots of toys and dolls. She had some public school, some private school. And for the most part, the cousin said that she dressed casually, more out in the country type clothes. 
When she was a child, Barbara loved riding horses and she would go to dog shows. She loved dogs. She also loved to swim. She was a little daring in the water, actually. And her mother, Nina, was described as quite doting. Her mother kept an eye on her children. Now, there was a story about a storm with with these big waves coming in and Nina calling the Coast Guard because she couldn't see Nina out in the water. But Nina had a side of her that just knew no fear. She would definitely take chances. Now, Frank Jr. was ornery like his sister. They were kind of like, quote, look at me, people. Uh, Frank Jr. definitely had a tendency to be a bit obnoxious. So when Barbara was 11 years old, her father committed suicide by carbon monoxide in the garage. You see, he had lost all of his money in the stock market crash. So he locked himself in his garage. He feigned working on the car. He was under the car, as it was described. Frank Jr. apparently witnessed this from a window into the garage, and he was kind of pacing back and forth in front of the door, watching his father die. Sources say that she found her father deceased. It makes me feel like maybe Frank Jr. saw it first, but regardless, her father committed suicide. It was awful. However, Frank Sr. had gotten life insurance policies. Frank Jr., Nina, and Barbara each got $60,000. Now sit down, folks. You ready? That is $1.3 million a piece today. Frank Jr. at this time was 19 years old. I couldn't really find any other info on Frank Jr. I mean, if I had a month to really dive, I probably could have. But all I found was that, and I'm just going to kind of give you the short and skinny of the life existence that he had that I found. Uh, Frank Jr. went on to commit suicide himself by driving a car into a tree when he was 33 years old. He had tried to be a writer and write for detective magazines. When he was 23 years old, so 10 years before he killed himself, in 1936, he had married a quiet and reserved young lady. There was tension in the marriage, but apparently they had two very lovely, very nice sons. That's all I could find out about Frank Jr. But with that money, Nina and Barbara moved to New York City, and more importantly, they moved right into the Delmonico Hotel. It, is, it was, at least at that point, a very elite hotel, but it's no longer there. So teenaged Barbara was noticed right away as a beauty. She posed for painters and artists. She became quite the socialite. She modeled in Vogue and Harper's Bazaar magazines. This, of course, opened a lot of doors for her. So she was invited to upper echelon parties. She went out on dates with rich eligible, handsome young men. She was actually named New York's one of the 10 most beautiful girls. She was positive and she was pro-social, or at least she displayed that behavior outwardly. But secretly, she was seeing a psychiatrist. Back then, she was told that she was schizophrenic. But we all know now that the diagnosis of schizophrenia was horrifically overdiagnosed and abused. So I'm sure it was not schizophrenia. So because of her beauty and her influence and her very pro-social socialite life, she was invited to Hollywood for a screen test. Her and Nina went. She was not ultimately chosen, but she did make a friend while she was there. And it was actress Cornelia Bakeland from a 
very wealthy family. So background story on the Bakelands, right? So the grandfather was Leo Hendrik Bakeland from Belgium. He was a scientist and an inventor. He finished college, he got his PhD, he came to the US, and at first he invented this special photographic paper. He then built up his company, the Nepera or Nepera Chemical Company, and he then sold it to Eastman Kodak in 1899. So Kodak is obviously the photography company. He then began experimenting with resins and he then invented Bakelite plastics. So he quite literally invented plastic, right? So when we say uh, obscene, disgusting amounts of money, this is what we're talking about, right? So her new friend, Cornelia, introduced Barbara to her brother, Brooks, over a weekend kind of outing at her house. Now, Brooks was highly intelligent. He had nearly finished his PhD in physics. He was quite talented in math, but he opted out of this to take classes in studying writing. Because of this, his father was pissed, right? And he would not speak to him. Uh, So during this time, Barbara also met and very briefly dated John Jacob Astor V. Now, if that name sounds familiar, it should because his father died on the Titanic. They were crazy wealthy. And you bet that John Jacob Astor was kind of desperate to keep her knowing that there were plenty of men sniffing around, right? So he offered her what would now be $3 million to wait for him while he divorced his current wife. So needless to say, she chose Brooks. But you know, at first, Brooks wasn't sold. And their very early relationship was quite passionate in every way. But, you know, he got tired of the fighting and he kind of hinted that maybe they should split. So she did what, unfortunately, some girls do. And she told him that she was pregnant. Back then, that would have been beyond scandalous, right? So they hurried up and got married. Brooks said, quote, I soon realized that whether Barbara was pregnant or not, and she was not, I had not married a soulmate, but a powerful and ambitious antagonist. She was far more brilliant and far stronger personality than I ever was or could be, end quote. So after they got married, they set up a home in a very luxurious apartment on the Upper East Side of New York. They entertained guests constantly through these parties for all of the rich and famous friends that they had. But once life settled, she very quickly became known for her over-emotional kind of outbursts. She seemed a little unstable. I mean, this was kind of agreed upon across the board. She drank very heavily. She seemed severely depressed. Brooks began having affairs, many, many affairs, actually, and it was known that Barbara had her share as well. But she did finally get pregnant. Antony, or Tony as they called him, was born in August of 1946. And from the beginning, she wanted Tony, or both of the parents really wanted Tony to be a prodigy, and he was a sharp child. They wanted him to be a boy genius, though. You know, they would take any little project or anything that he did, you know, pictures he'd drawn at school when he was little and just show them to everyone. Look, he's a genius. Look at his artistic ability. It was said that Tony did develop a stutter, but he didn't around a specific babysitter who they then hired full time. 
So an acquaintance of the family remembered young Tony reading from one of Marquis de Sade's books aloud. Now, I covered the Marquis de Sade, so if you've listened to that one, by all means, you know. But if not, I'll put a link to it if I remember to, and you can go listen to it. But trust me, that is not material for children at all. Another acquaintance distanced themselves due to little Tony bragging about, you know, pulling wings off of a fly to see how it would balance. But, you know, Brooks was impressed by this. He thought it was a little scientific experiment. I mean, hello, can we say Lionel Dahmer? The couple fought like cats and dogs. And by the time Tony was eight years old, Barbara had climbed all of the social ladders in the U.S. that she could. People had witnessed her bizarre meltdowns, and her personality changed a bit after becoming a mother. She was intensely possessive and emotionally needy of Tony, but she was also a little neglectful. Tony later told psychiatrists that he had his first homosexual experience at eight years old at a boarding school. But, you know, again, Barbara had broken through all the social ceilings that she could, and so overall, Brooks and Barbara decided they would take Tony and they would conquer Europe. So during the summer of 1954, the family really began to kind of live like nomads. They kept their New York home, but they pretty much lived in Europe. There were houses and villas in Paris, London, Zermatt, which is a German-speaking section of Switzerland I'd never heard of, the French Riviera, and Italy. They rubbed elbows with the rich and famous of Europe. They would take a yacht out. They would drink serious amounts of wine, and they just lazed around gossiping with whomever they invited, including some local royalty. And Tony was there, but Tony was left out. Now, observers state that he was lonely and too self-sufficient for his young age. He also had red hair and brown eyes like his mother. He was a charming child, but people noticed beneath that there was quite a bit of turmoil. One example was that he was witnessed catching and ripping crabs apart on the rocks of the shore, and the parents paid no attention to this. So in 1960, when Tony was 14 years old, it was observed that he was stealing baby food from a friend's infant. He was also actively seeking out male encounters, if you know what I mean. He was known to pick up boys on the street and take them home with him when his parents were not home. Now, Brooks had suspected for some time that his son was gay, but Barbara would not hear of it. That was something that she just could not accept. And so she fought ferociously between these two men in her life. And then again, Brooks started having affairs again. So for the most part, they were living in Paris pretty much the whole time. In 1963, Brooks fell for a girl 15 years younger. It was an English diplomat's daughter. He asked Barbara for a divorce, and her response was that she tried to unalive herself with an overdose of pills. Now, she survived, but Brooks decided to stay. He just felt he didn't really want that karma on him, so to speak. He said, quote, Faced with becoming a murderer for the sake of freedom, I gave up my girl. End quote. 
Now, Barbara struck up an affair with a Spanish physicist to make Brooks jealous, but instead, Brooks offered her an allowance to be with her lover and just let him go to divorce him, but she broke off the affair. Now, in 1967, this, my guys, was a very pivotal year. Tony was now 20 years old. He spent the summer with his parents in Spain. There, he met Jake Cooper from Australia. Jake also had a female lover. She described Jake as the devil, that he had power over people. He was dark-haired, known as Black Jake, I guess, super handsome. He lived on or in an abandoned farm with hippies doing shrooms and other drugs. He had these bones sewn into his vest. I'm not really sure the the reason for that, but all the sources made a point to point that out. So he had these little bones sewn into his vest. There were rumors that it was black magic, but Tony lavished him and these people with gifts and he just fell in love with Jake. But of course, those kinds of activities do not go unnoticed. So Jake fed Tony drugs and together they ran off to Morocco and they came back with nightshade, which was described as a dangerous hallucinogenic. I'm not super familiar with nightshade, but I do remember that that is kind of dangerous. And again, this did not escape the notice of the kind of rich people who knew Barbara. So a friend of Barbara's called her, told her what was going on. Barbara came and tried to whisk Tony off to Switzerland, but they were caught at immigration because he had forgotten his passport. Barbara had a nuclear tantrum, and she was spitting at and kicking at the officers, and both were arrested and spent the night in jail. So Tony then began to see a French girl named Sylvie, and of course this thrilled Barbara. Tony brought her to meet his parents, and Barbara immediately pressed for their marriage. So they had Sylvia around a lot for the next few weeks. Now, as a sidebar, I have to say that I don't necessarily think that Tony was actually sexually attracted to Sylvia. I almost feel like he brought her around to try to appease his mother more so than both parents because she so desperately wanted him to be with a woman. So I don't entirely think that Tony was attracted to her, but you know, who knows? But Barbara's plan of keeping Sylvia around for so long kind of backfired because instead, Brooks began an affair with Sylvie. This affair went on for months before Barbara even found out. And then there was another suicide attempt. This time, it was a fistful of sedatives uh, chased with vodka. But of course, this didn't work either. And this time, Brooks actually stayed. He chose Sylvie. So he told Barbara that he actually really wanted a divorce, right? So while this is going on on the side, Barbara was still kind of desperate for Tony to be straight, right? So she began hiring prostitutes of sorts, or really women willing to take money to try to seduce Tony to make him straight. And as we all know, obviously this did not work. Tony was, and had been since his younger teenage years, also displaying some paranoid tendencies. The diagnosis was schizophrenia, but Brooks refused treatment. He said that psychotherapy was amoral. So Barbara told Brooks that she believed that she could get Tony to get over his homosexuality if she made him 
sleep with her. Yes, guys. And Brooks said, don't you dare do that, Barbara. So Brooks went on to marry Sylvie, right? They had a son together. They divorced and he married a woman named Susan after. Barbara began dating another man, but broke it off after a time. She had become obsessed with him and she was kind of stalking him. So he cut it off. And then Barbara, you know, kind of just made that final decision that she was going to fix Tony. So here's your disclaimer. There's going to be some incestual shit going on, okay? So she spent the summer, or they spent the summer, of 1969 on an island south of Spain. They drank, they smoked marijuana in a house that they borrowed from an Australian diplomat's daughter. It was said that, quote, in this rambling, run-down villa, set high on a cliff with no phone or electricity, the woman who had beguiled men all over the world turned her charms on her son and took him to her bed. End quote. So Barbara slept with Tony, her own son. She felt this would cure his homosexuality once and for all, for him to sleep with a woman who... um knew what she was doing. Gross. And how many times did they sleep together? Quite a few. So Barbara, unfortunately, kind of bragged to a small select few about what she had done, how convinced she was that it had been successful. He was no longer a homosexual. Like, that's how that works. And then Brooks and Sylvie showed up at the villa. Sylvie later stated, quote, it was very uncomfortable, very hard. He left messages for Brooks in our flower pots. I found one. It said, Daddy, please, Daddy, come back to Mummy. She's so unhappy. He acted like a little eight-year-old. End quote. And indeed, Tony began having these violent outbursts, right? They were finding broken furniture out in the garden. They found a destroyed typewriter. And Barbara admitted that Tony did it because he was, quote, upset about something, end quote. But then they'd had enough and Barbara and Tony went back to New York. During a dinner party Barbara was having, Tony apparently stripped, paced the large apartment back and forth in the nude. He signed up for art school. And then during class, he just wasn't responding to anybody and seemed to be in a world of his own. Others' art were stills of fruit or flowers. Tony was painting bloody human figures. But, you know, dismissing this strange behavior, Barbara remained convinced that her son was nothing more than a misunderstood genius who was never meant to work and toil in this sick society. Tony confided in a friend that he was, quote, fucking my mother, and he didn't know what to do. He felt that he was about to break. Others who visited the Bakelands home in New York recalled seeing portraits painted by Tony, showing his mother decapitated and with serpents entwined around her neck. Yikes. So one night, he was acting delusional and highly agitated. She had him checked into a psychiatric facility, but checked him back out after only a few weeks. She simply couldn't afford it, but it didn't matter. The prognosis was not good, regardless. 
Brooks wouldn't pay for it either. Again, he said that his son was, quote, a personification of evil, end quote, and dismissed psychiatrists as practitioners of mumbo-jumbo. And so, as predictable, Tony soon relapsed. He beat Barbara unconscious with a heavy wooden walking cane one night, and then, when her divorce lawyer tried to go to her aid, well, he knocked him out too. Later, he mashed an egg across his mother's face at a dinner party. He threatened her with a knife and then attempted to choke her in front of the alarmed guests, and it just got more erratic after. By August 1972, Tony was often to be found in these kind of catatonic trances. He was clutching himself and swaying to and fro. Barbara arranged for him to see Dr. Lindsay Jacobs, which was a psychiatrist recommended by a friend. And Jacobs confirmed that Tony was suffering from schizophrenia, made worse because Barbara had failed to make sure he took his prescribed medicines. Jacobs was extremely concerned for her safety. Quote, your son is going to kill you, he warned. I think you're at grave risk. Barbara replied, I don't. So on November 17, 1972, Antony murdered his mother by stabbing her with a kitchen knife, killing her almost instantly. She was 51 years of age at that time, and Tony was 26. When the police arrived, they found Tony ordering a Chinese meal sitting on the edge of his bed in his room. Quote, he said, quote, I think my mind was slightly wacky and I was very much under my mother's powerful influence. I felt as though she were controlling my mind, end quote. Now, his recollections were confused, but he remembered hitting Barbara and her running into the kitchen. He followed her. He picked up a knife from the kitchen table and he stabbed her with it. She fell to the floor and he called an ambulance. He said, quote, it took hours to come, and by the time it did, my mother was dead. It was horrible. I held her hand, and she would not look at me or speak to me. Then she died, End quote. The paramedics alerted the police, who arrived to find Barbara lying on her back in the kitchen with a single stab wound near her heart. The knife had severed a main artery. And because they had actually been in England when this occurred, just a little trip to England, he was arrested and he was taken to the Chelsea police station. He maintained that Barbara had been stabbed by her mother, Nina, who was in her 80s and thousands of miles away at her home in New York. He also remarked to the detective who arrested him that, quote, it all started when I was three or five and I fell off my pogo stick, end quote. Now, when friends visited him in Brixton prison, he asked, how is my mother? Is she well? Later, feeling, quote, clearer in the nog and accepting that his mother was dead, Tony spoke of feeling that there had been a great weight that had been lifted off of his shoulders. So after his trial, Tony was found guilty of manslaughter with diminished responsibility and was sent to Broadmoor for an indefinite period. Now, Broadmoor is this like super infamous facility in England for dangerous, mentally ill criminals. I'm sure they housed more than just that, but 
Broadmoor, if you're into it, you should look it up. It's an interesting place. But, you know, Tony seemed happy there. He was working in the handicrafts shop. He was having clandestine relationships with other male inmates and welcoming visitors, including his grandmother, Nina. But Brooks had also received abusive letters from Tony during this time, some threatening to murder his new wife, Sylvie. In July 1980, he was released. He was 33 years old. He flew back to New York and he moved in with his grandmother, Nina. Only six days after his release, on July 27th, he attacked her with a kitchen knife, stabbing her eight times and breaking several bones. A neighbor heard some shouting or screaming or something, and she came out and knocked on the door and knocked and knocked, but eventually Tony came to the door wearing only a pair of shorts. He told her, quote, Lena, quick, get the ambulance. I've just stabbed my grandmother. So she ran to a nearby phone box and called the police. As they entered the apartment, they heard Nina shrieking with terror and saw Tony rushing out of her bedroom towards them. He said, quote, she won't die. The knife won't go in and she keeps screaming. I can't understand it. He was shouting this at them as they grabbed him. The police found his grandmother lying against the wall in a corner of her bedroom with blood soaking through her satin nightgown. She had been stabbed eight times and had multiple other injuries, including a fractured collarbone and ribs. While they waited for an ambulance to arrive, Tony was taken to the local police station. He later explained that he wanted to have sex with his grandmother just as he had with his mother. This, at least, was the underlying cause of his frustration, but the trigger for the attack was that she had tried to stop him making a phone call to England. Realizing that he had injured her, he apparently decided it would be kindest to put her out of her misery, so he began attacking her with a kitchen knife, but she would not die. You know what he said to the police? He said, quote, I hate it when this happens, end quote. Now, miraculously, every blow had struck bone and his grandmother survived. Tony was charged with attempted murder and sent to Rikers Island, New York's main prison. After eight months of assessment by the psychiatric team at Rikers Island, he was expecting to be released on bail at a court hearing on March 20th, 1981. However, the case was adjourned by the judge due to a delay in the transfer of his medical records from the UK. Tony returned to his cell at 3.30 p.m. on March 20th, 1981, and he was found dead by suicide 30 minutes later, having suffocated himself with a plastic bag. Now, guys, I saw a lot of arguments back and forth about how could anyone do that, but if you, well, I don't really want to tell you how to do it, but, you know, when you run out of oxygen and you get to the carbon dioxide or whatever, from what I understand, there's like a euphoric, I don't really want to get into that. Anyway, so his dad, Brooks Bakeland, believed his son had been murdered, perhaps because he had threatened to reveal his relationship with the guard or refused to hand over money to one of the more dangerous and violent inmates. And, you know, could have been a possibility. I mean, Jeffrey Epstein, quote, killed himself, right, right? Others were convinced it was suicide, but whether Tony was killed or brought about his death himself, one thing was certain. 
a bit of dark humor, but also not funny. But regardless, what ended his life was a bag made of plastic, the material behind the fortune which had made the Bakelands one of the U.S.'s most envied families, but also one of its most tragic. I think it's safe to say that Barbara would have been most likely diagnosed as histrionic, one of the cluster B personality disorders with narcissism, borderline, and antisocial. So, a refresher. Cluster A can be kind of easily remembered as odd thinking and behaviors, paranoia, etc. Cluster C is the more anxious thoughts and behaviors. Cluster B is the unpredictable, dramatic, or intensely emotional responses to things. People with histrionic personality disorder want attention all the time and actively seek it out. With this disorder, they'll usually be very aware of how they look all the time. They behave in exaggerated ways and may seem over the top. The big thing is overreacting. So if one has HPD, you may overreact to small events. You might appear to be fine one moment and then burst into tears when told that you can't do something. You may also have trouble maintaining relationships because of how you act. Other symptoms of histrionic personality disorder include strong opinions without actual knowledge, dramatic behavior, a constant need for attention, shallow emotions that change frequently, and suggestibility. Now, when I was kind of thinking about this, I realized that she also kind of shows flavors of borderline in that deep fear of loneliness. So there's the frequent displays of anger, feelings of emptiness, unstable relationships, impulsiveness, black and white thinking, risk-seeking behavior such as gambling or unsafe sex, and suicidal threats. So Tony definitely displayed conduct disorder as a child and was most likely antisocial. So some of the symptoms of that are aggressiveness, impulsiveness, lack of remorse, frequent problems with the law, disregard for safety, persistent lying, consistent, irresponsible behavior. So the question remains, it's not really a question, obviously, that him having sex with his mother would have perpetuated, it would have intensified all of these feelings. I mean, obviously, that would have made him snap. I don't understand why she thought that sleeping with her own flesh and blood child, you know, metaphorically half her, right, would cure him of his homosexuality. Uh, we know now that that doesn't happen. That's not how that works. And bless the men and women who had to live these horribly forced lives because it was so bad to come out during that time. And I'm quite happy that people are able to be themselves in that regard now. I think we all are happy for them. But I don't know how she got from my son needs help to, I know, I'll just have sex with him and that will cure him. You get what I'm saying? That is some severely disordered thought processes, so to speak. But regardless, that is the story of Barbara Bakeland and Tony Bakeland. And what do you guys think? You know, leave me a comment on, you can leave me a comment on Instagram at serial underscore killing is what I'm under. You can come join the Facebook fan page. That is Serial Killing, a podcast fan page that was created by Doc, who was in the Mommy Issues. 
podcast. And by the way, you guys go get your merch. It's funny as shit. I absolutely love it. Mine, mine is coming and I will model so you can see what it looks like when it comes. I, I paid for mine out of my own pocket. But regardless, as always, thank you so much for listening. Because I know you could have listened to anyone else. But you chose me and you continue to do so. And I so appreciate that. Thank you so much, guys. Have a great day. Yeah, anybody who killed more than two or three people was a mass murderer. And whether it was all at one place or over an extended period of time. And then uh, in the early 80s, they came up with this differentiation called serial killing. <laughs>